0: I haven't had internet issues this week, so we should be okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Cinema in Seconds. This is the podcast where we look, where we, ugh.
1: that's staying like, in. No, we're
0: not <laughs> keeping that in. Yes, we are. <laughs>
1: we're doing <it> live.
0: <laughs> oh, and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian, and I'm Daniel. And this week, we are looking at our favorite directors, and so moments from our favorite directors. And we thought, you know, to get a little bit of variety, we're going to bring in a guest, a brand new guest to the podcast, Ron. How's it going?
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here and uh, ready to talk some some movies.
0: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Welcome uh, so to the this, show. So Thank what you. we did is we just kind of picked uh, two of our favorite directors each and thought of some movies and some moments that we could talk about with them um Dan I gotta say the ones you picked are not what I expected
1: (laughs) yeah um well it's funny because like I was actually kind of weirdly stumped this week for a lot of it I didn't update my picks for a long time and part of that I think was because I was like favorite directors like that's that's a lot but also like You know, last week, I didn't really think about it. We were just doing mid 70s and I just threw up the first couple of picks that came to mind. And then like looking back, it's like Kubrick Scorsese, Coppola, like these could be my favorite directors. So I kind of interpreted the question this week as like, who are my favorite directors working today right now Gotcha. and whose movies I would be most like if they if they put out a movie, who are the two that I would go see first if a new one came out tomorrow? So um, that was kind of my guideline.
0: Right, because when I when I talked to message Ron about this, Ron, I was like, "Oh yeah, Dan will pick like Kurosawa and Scorsese probably." <laughs> <laughs> but we ha- you have talked about them a lot, so I guess that's that's funny. Yeah, a
1: different. I still almost pick Scorsese because he is still, I think, like one of the best directors working today, and every film he makes is still an event. But I'm like, I shouldn't do it again. I should give him a little bit of a break. Yeah.
0: So. and Ron, what was your thought process when you went through your directors?
2: I, the first one I, I chose, I, I, I was confident in, I was like, all right, I really love um, my first choice. And then I flip-flopped on my second choice for a long time, because I have so many favorite directors. And um, as I mentioned, I'm not a completionist by any means. Um, But I I chose directors where I, you know, I know I love 80 to 90% of the films of theirs that I have seen. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'll choose different period in time and choose a director of that time when that director happened to be my favorite for whatever reason and that's what i end up going with and even though they might not be my favorite director at this moment at one point in my life they were and had a great impact on it
1: yeah yeah that's a good uh, thought pro i almost did something similar i almost like was going to do like who were my favorite directors when i was like 16. um okay that's what exactly what i did for my second choice <laughs> <laughs> Sub-
2: subtract maybe five years from that who's my favorite director when i was 11 ah yes there you go <laughs> nice
1: um i mean it's funny though because you do kind of have to narrow it like uh, uh, ian i don't know if you had like a thought process or it was just like you know, i just went with
0: the most obvious ones
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> fair enough yeah i mean you know if that works it works yeah i'm a little surprised who i mean one of them one of your choices i'm like yeah that's that's his favorite director. The other one I was a little bit surprised by, but maybe I shouldn't be. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is your first pick. Which with maybe Nolan? That's... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I went with uh, Christopher Nolan, which is funny because I actually haven't talked about any of his movies in the podcast yet. I think you talked about Memento, but that's really the only time we've covered him.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. So, which is odd because, um, yeah, I would say he's one of my big directors working right now. I every one of his movies that comes out does seem like an event movie. And I love most of them. Tenet, I was a little iffy on, but um, yeah. So let's talk about Nolan. So when I was thinking about movies, of course, there's lots to choose from. And I was really thinking Inception, but I actually decided to go with The Dark Knight, which I guess is topical right now with the new batman movie in the theaters
1: it's always topical there's always a new batman movie. yeah it does seem that way yeah um
0: so the moment i'm going to talk about is actually with christian bale not as batman but as bruce wayne and it's a scene where there's this one wayne enterprises employee who has figured out who batman is and he's willing he's about to spill it and then the joker kind of puts a bounty on him And so the police are trying to protect him. And you can see that the police car that he's in is about to get rammed. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is driving his uh what was the fancy car that he drove? The Ferrari or something? The Lamborghini. Lamborghini, yeah. Much Much more subtle.
1: Much (laughs) more subtle. That was my very awful (laughs) microphone. His voice is both so like identifiable and yet unattainable.
0: (laughs) And so, of course, um he runs the Lamborghini into this truck that was about to crash into the cop car and saving this guy's life basically. And when commissioner Gordon goes to talk to him, he's like, that was a brave thing you did. And he says, what catching the light. <laughs> and then he's like, um, and he's like, no, protecting the van. He says, well, who is in it? And, uh, should I go to the hospital? <laughs> and I kind of like it because, The thing about Nolan's Batman is it kind of has this reputation of being like really serious all all the time, like uber serious. But I don't think that that reputation is justified necessarily. I think there's still a lot of fun in these movies that gets overlooked, I guess, because everybody kind of thinks of it as, you know, the gritty version. Um, But I, I just don't really see it that way. It's more based in realism, but there is a lot of humor to it as well. Um, and I like that they're using the Bruce Wayne persona in, you know, in a funny way. And, uh, but also just to protect the interests of Batman in general. And there's also another part right after this where the guy who is, who's being, who's got the bounty on him gets out of the police car. And then there's this little look between uh, Bruce and him. And it's like this knowing look and it's an interesting way to resolve that situation because Bruce decides that he's going to ensure this guy's silence, not through threats, but through respect, right? The fact that this guy saved his life, even though he was threatening him is kind of like ensured that he's not going to say anything now. So I like it for a few different reasons. I like it for that aspect, and I like it for the comedic aspect, which I think highlights that these movies are quite a bit of fun. They're not dreary like sometimes their reputation can be.
1: Yeah, uh, I agree very much with your assessment, too. Like, these movies are a lot more humorous than they're given credit for. Like, they are funny. There are jokes in the films, and they're, they're good jokes. I, feel, I, I would argue there's something similar going on with The Batman, which is it doesn't have quips but it does have a strong sense of humor. Um, the other thing I really like about the moment you highlighted is the importance in terms of uh, Batman's character of like saving people and actually protecting, you know, the public. Cause I think it's very easy to fall into a version of Batman. that's just like edgelord grim. He's mm-hmm. the night and he punches people and he's very tormented and he's got to break people to get that torment out. And like, that's an aspect of the character and there's value in exploring it, but a, a fundamental core of him is that you know he cares about people and he wants to save as many lives as he can i mean fundamentally he's a character that like you know he doesn't want what happened to him to happen to anybody else and i right. think it, it's easy to lose and i think that the nolan films actually do capture that sense of his sense of empathy for um the people of gotham which i think is really important
0: and it's an interesting moral quandary that's put with this guy right because the joker is threatening to blow up a hospital if nobody takes him out but batman is like okay well that issue will resolve itself but i have to do what's right in this moment right it's kind of like very kant philosophy like everybody is their own moral agent and so just because somebody's holding a a gun to your head or a gun to somebody else's head doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the right thing um necessarily and so i like that nolan and and the rest of the film crew is willing to explore that idea too
2: yeah that's a great scene i think it's a really good use of bruce wayne's characters too uh, i mean his timing is impeccable in that scene and I, I i thought it was funny um i remember that scene where the guy's just sitting there revving his car <laughs> his truck and uh you know and when he shows up just the look he gives him it's a great look and uh I thought it would have been funny if he walked over to the guy and whispered his ear. He's like, are you all right? <laughs> just because <laughs> of the Batman voice. <laughs> and just winks at him. But that's no, a great scene. And uh, it's good to see Bruce Wayne in action in those scene. And I, I think he makes some really good, valid points.
0: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good use of like Bruce Wayne, right? As opposed to like throwing him into the movie rather than just having it be batman again like it's bruce himself that's and it's the fun of
1: of secret identities Mm -hmm. that i feel like we kind of lost in the recent crop of mcu movies where it's just like every superhero is like a public figure celebrity and like i don't need every superhero to have to be constantly hiding who they are certainly by the end of the dark Knight trilogy pretty much everyone knows who bruce (laughs) is at least of his circle but um (laughs) You know, there's a lot of fun to be had playing with those questions. And they're some of the most fun I remember from like when I was younger and I read comic books and watched superhero cartoons more frequently. Not that I don't do those things still, <laughs> um, but, you know, that was a lot of the fun of those stories. And I do miss that. Um, the Batman plays with it a little bit, which is nice, but.
0: Yeah. The Batman has very little Bruce Wayne in it at all, though.
1: It, it's true. was really just, odd. I was thinking though, about like him showing up at the club at one point, like as Bruce and how the, the differences of him showing up there as Batman versus Bruce Wayne um, in general, that was a fun running gag. Going back again to the movie's humor. And it'll be interesting too. Cause like, that's also a fun example of how the alter ego of the character provides interesting space for like, and now we're just talking about the Batman, but you know, <laughs> the way that movie ends where it's like, there's a clear place for like Batman to go in terms of like, being less of like the edgelord, dark vigilante, but there's also room for Bruce to grow and not be so much of like a Howard Hughes-esque hermit who doesn't leave his house. So again, like the fun of a secret identity, like you have a character that's inherently playing with duality, like you can do a lot with that. You can have fun with that. Right.
2: And I think that's really important too, because you want to see more of that duality because that's what makes their alter ego shine and, and it, it lets you see what are they bringing into this alter ego Give me some more information about the real life and what's going on and how they react to certain situations on the other side of the spectrum and and that's something i, I thought was lacking a bit in the batman but that we got to see more in christopher nolan's trilogy and uh, you know as we talked about the lightheartedness i think by the time the third movie came out when you compare the dark knight rises to the batman you know they're they're polar no i wouldn't say polar opposites but one is definitely more lighthearted than the other and uh, I think that's beginning to show more in The Dark Knight. You know, there's a lot of humor in there as, 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 uh, as grim as that movie ultimately ends up becoming near the, the second half. Right.
0: And I think even that uh, criticism is applied to Nolan himself quite a bit. Like the fact that he's humorless, which I don't really get either.
1: Yeah, like his humor is kind of dry, but it's not. And I do wonder, and I don't I don't mean to just constantly be talking about how much I hate the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I don't hate <laughs> them. I like movies for the most part, but like, I do feel like on some level, the humor of blockbuster films in the last decade or so has really leaned into a sort of quippy sort of uh, sense of like sarcasm and irony. Um, Everything's very wink, wink. And these films, while they have humor, they don't really do that. Um, The humor comes more organically from the characters and they don't, they very rarely sacrifice, if ever, like dramatic beats for a joke. So yeah. I think that might just be part of it, is like shifting uh, audience expectations for what counts as like comedy in, you know, a superhero film or even an action film. Yeah, I agree. So, awesome. I mean, even Batman Begins has that great, you know, damn good television punchline. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, so that was my first director, uh, Ron. You want to tell us who you picked and what movie you picked?
2: Sure. I picked Quentin Tarantino. Uh, for uh, my first pick, and just a little uh, background of why I chose him, um, and also give a kind of a clue to, to my age. I think I'm probably a, a little bit older than you, Ian, and from the clues I picked uh, uh, over past episodes, I think you're a bit older than Dan, but this will show my age. Um, uh, sometime right after high school, uh, me and my friends had watched Reservoir Dogs, and, uh, you know, it was a good movie. We didn't have internet, around back then so we couldn't do our research on who does what and what's coming out but there were trailers for a movie I think a year later for called Pulp Fiction all I knew is it had Bruce Willis John Travolta looked really cool and when we went to go see it we're like let's go see Pulp Fiction we show up at the theater it's sold out except for the front row so we sat in the front row and this movie came on and it was right in our faces larger than life with all these colorful characters and, and interesting conversations and just crazy tense moments with uh with just all these, you know, crazy plot twists. And then I uh, was completely blown away by that. And then for seven years, I'm trying to consume everything that's Quentin Tarantino and, and researching it. And all we had was Entertainment Weekly, the entertainment section of the newspaper, Empire Magazine to do our movie <laughs> research. And then Kill Bill came out and that was just a, a potpourri of everything I loved about movies inside. and. Uh, Uh, kill bill is one of my favorite movies and the scene i chose is from kill bill volume two and that's the scene where bill confronts bud i think it's the second scene of the movie um it's right after they show the um the uh, wedding rehearsal massacre and uh, bud who's played by michael madsen in this film um bill's confronting him asking him if uh he's still been uh practicing with his hanzo sword and, and bud says no he pawned it off and 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 uh bill's saying well you know can't we let the past be the past and it, it's uh hinting that they've had some kind of fallout and that bud's chosen this different life and he doesn't care and he's like you know if she wants to come and, and get me and she knows where to find me go to the bar i work at and she can start some some bleep and stuff and then uh he's like you know i you know i, I just wish we could let the past go bill says and then bud says the line that woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die But then again so does she so i guess we'll just wait and see won't we and we see the first half of that line uh, in the closing segment of kill bill volume one but we get the rest of the context in in volume two and i like that scene just number one for michael madsen's delivery of it Um, i like how the film uses the way he delivers that line to make assumptions about his character and why he chooses to live the lifestyle he's currently living and why he walked away from the lifestyle without ever really knowing anything more about him except for the fact that he's living that lifestyle and that he's had a fallout with his brother. And each sentence of those lines, Michael Madsen delivers a different emotion. When he says the first sentence, he says it with regret he's really sorry for for what happened and you know he feels that they deserve what's coming to them and then he pauses and then he gives a snicker and then he delivers the second part with contempt and uh, you know a bit of humor and after he says that then he pauses again and then he looks genuinely thoughtful and says so I guess we'll see won't we and he introduces this character that in a movie, a film filled with over-the-top characters is probably has the most depth and is the most grounded out of all of them. And which brings to my second point, he's right. She's a bad person. You know, she does deserve it too. We've seen everything from her perspective up until that point, all these injustices done against her and her getting her, her well-deserved revenge on all of them. But when you look at the first film, she has so much experience and so much confidence when she walks into battle and she's taking out all these enemies and and all these these quotations bad guys that you have to have killed a heck of a lot of people to get up to that point prior to her revenge and you know not just the training she she's probably killed dozens of people up to this point and she's no different than bud um you know she she might be a bit different than or in Ishii, who's, a, who's a, a a Yakuza boss, and some of the other uh, Viper squad. But then you have Michael Madsen's character, and he looks like the only one that seems to regret everything that he's done, and he's walked away from this lifestyle. And the only reason she's walked away from it is because she had a daughter, and rightfully so. And that's why she chose to walk away. But she doesn't seem to have any qualms about what she does she goes in there you know she's willing to kill a mother in front of her daughter Uh, you know she wants revenge because of what's happened to her but he he genuinely seems to have walked away from this lifestyle for reasons that we don't know it could be because of what they did to her it could be because he regrets you know the lifestyle he had before killing any one of those people that he probably killed in the past but we see a lot more of it in the following scenes when you realize, wow, he, he lives a life where he surrounds himself with people that don't respect him. He's in a dead-end job, he's broke, but he'd choose that over what he was doing before, which is killing people for for money and living this last lifestyle. And a brother who's the boss, who's trying to welcome him back with open arms, who cares about him. And, and um, I just think it's an interesting scene. And I think just the way he delivers those three lines just says a lot about him and just kind of shows also what a bad person the bride is and that we root for her as an audience, but we really know very little about her too, other than what the film hints at. And, um, and that was my pick. That's my moment.
0: Yeah. It's a great scene. Uh, I really like this pick. And I think it's interesting the lines that you said, and you mentioned that the first part was mentioned in the volume one kind of at the end is a little bit of a teaser. And then I kind of like that we, get the hint that he's being really uh, introspective and and regretting and accepting his fate after that movie. And then we think that for a year and then we get the second part of that in this movie and you're like, oh no, he's not just going to lay down and take it. Um, yeah.
1: Well, it's one of the things I love about Kill Bill in general The um, is how each character, like from the beginning, even though it's like set up as the most simplistic revenge story possible of like these five people wronged me here is my list I'm going through one at a time each person complicates that um the morality of that like from the very beginning you know she kills Vivica a. Fox and it's like right in front of her kid and she says you know if you feel you know sore about this in 15 years or so come see me like right from the start it's like okay collateral damage of this and then Oren, you could argue is more of a villain because she's, you know, a Yakuza boss and she's, you know, we see her do some pretty grisly stuff, including an amazing decapitation. (laughs) But also she has like this super sympathetic backstory where it's like you, you root for her in, in achieving that power. And then, yeah, by the time you get to Bud, he's, I agree. He's the most sort of realistically drawn and he's just so like, his whole section of the film is so sad. And Michael Madsen's performance is just perfect. I think it's my favorite of the performances he's done is for Tarantino, but also probably in general, um, yeah. you know, obviously Mr. Blonde is a little bit cooler, but the, uh, I don't know, the sense of just like regret and resignation is so like palpable. Um, but I also love how, like, I think he comes the closest of any of them to killing the bride,
0: Yeah, which yeah, is cool. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the only one that, that uh, comes out ahead with her. And, and he, he doesn't do it for reasons of his own because he's scared of her. Or he wants revenge when he's, putting her in the coffin he's like uh, i forget what he, the exact line but something of the lines of this is for breaking my brother's heart or something like that and, yeah you know as much as the, as big as the fault they had and how he tries to hurt him by saying he pawned the sword he genuinely loved his brother and that's his motive for mm-hmm. for trying to come out on top and and he doesn't even kill her he gives her a fighting chance gives her a flashlight
1: and that's a great thing too where he's like you know i'm going to bury you and if you struggle i'm going to spray this mace in your eye but if you don't i'll give you a flashlight going down like it's it's a horrible thing but also like he's got a weird code of how he does it of like that you, it almost does like you said like it, it kind of feels fair it's not really but it kind of feels like it um yeah i i uh he's such a fascinating character in the context of the, of everyone else. And yeah, the fact that, and I don't know if there's any significance to him being the one who comes the closest, I think on some level, it's just kind of neat because it's such a surprise, but I do maybe think there's something about him being the only one who is a little bit the most detached from the sense of like, you know, the honorable assassins and this way of the warrior or whatever, where he's just like, no, I'm going to set a little trap because I know she's coming and I'm just going to blast her the chest with rock salt because of course like it, it's not i'm fighting for my life i don't care about like i mean all the characters are varying degrees of dishonorable over and lets uh beatrix fight uh the crazy 88 before and tire her out before she fights uh vivica K. fox tries to take a cheap shot to the cereal box so none of them are like you know purely honorable but they still buy into a bit of that like mythos a bit more than bud who's just like nope i'm gonna hide in the corner with a shotgun full of rock salt <laughs> which is what i would do to be fair
2: <laughs> but you got to wonder if maybe he was the most dangerous because when you look at all the other um, all the other moments, when she goes back and gets revenge on the, um, the rest of the team, she pretty much announces herself. She knocks on Vivica Fox's door. She walks into the club and announces herself to Oren. Um, even Bill, she walks in there into his house and, and uh, yeah, you know, his, his, uh, when she uh, uh, is searching for him, she's like, tell Bill I'm coming and stuff. But with Michael Madsen, she comes in for the surprise attack, ready to take him out right then and there, even though he's the most unassuming, which makes me assume that maybe he's the most dangerous and she can't take that chance with him. But mm-hmm. we don't know that because we know very little about his background. Yeah, that's, that's a, good a good observation.
0: Point. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Sort of takes in our prior associations with him in Tarantino films as like the most, you know, sadistic and evil of the characters in reservoir dogs. He's not playing that character again, but you kind of carry that association with him. Um yeah, it's a really good pick. I also love the scene. David Carradine's like in general, his performance across these films is great, but specifically the delivery of like, you know, you've got to get over being angry at me and start becoming afraid of her because she's yeah. coming and she's coming yeah. to kill you. And unless you accept my assistance, I have no doubt that she will succeed. Like it's so it's a great line. It's very like overly <laughs> embellished and dramatic. But yeah, Carradine's right. delivery is just perfect. It's so genuine, to-
2: so genuine
0: yeah the interesting thing too is that she doesn't kill him he's the only one mm-hmm. that she doesn't kill which i think is there's got to be something there too
1: i wonder if on some level it's just because he's so sympathetic it was like the audience might turn on her a bit if, he, <laughs> if she <laughs> kills him uh and it also it adds more to use wrestling terminology it adds a bit more heat to um uh oh god what daryl hannah's character i don't remember her name now she's oh, awesome Ollie? though yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah ellie driver yeah she's so good um yeah. So, it, you know, it, it adds a little bit more to to her. And also, which is good, because you don't really... The showdown with Bill ends up going down a very different road. So the showdown with Ellie is kind of the last, like, big triumphant action moment. Um, right. Technically, you could argue that Beatrix doesn't kill Ellie either. The snake probably does. so True.
2: Or they're saving her for that long-rumored Kill Bill Volume 3.
1: Yep. It's like Batman Begins logic of like, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. (laughs) Which I don't know if that would hold up in like a court of law, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, that was a great pick. Great scene. Mm -hmm. It really is a great scene. Like you just watch it and you're just captivated by it, even though it's just two guys talking. It's really good.
1: Mm -hmm. All righty. I'll jump into a, a comparable auteur to Mr. Tarantino. The two men are friends after all Paul Thomas Anderson who once I settled on my sort of system of like okay the directors who I'm most excited about right now it's like four of PTA's last five films were my number one favorite film of the year with There Will Be Blood, The Master, Phantom Thread, and Licorice Pizza so it's like okay clearly he's my favorite like just mathematically um and I went with a scene that's kind of a cheat because it's kind of a big moment uh but in Magnolia Famous frog raining scene, the first frog that falls. And so, the reason I'm sort of highlighting this is because I'd heard about the scene long before I'd seen the film that Magnolia was like, I, all I knew about the film was it's the one where the frogs rain from the sky. And my mom, like, hates the movie for that reason. It's like, it's so stupid. Frogs rain. That's ridiculous. It's like, it's technically happened, mom. She don't care. Um, but I kind of had imagined it in my head as being like this more, this very like sort of whimsical, magical realist scene that was kind of enchanting in like a weird way, but in a, you know, fundamentally like a fairy tale for adults. And there's a little bit of that going on, especially when you have that shot of Stanley watching them fall and you see their shadows kind of cast over his body in the library that he's in. But actually it's like a horrific scene. Like the sounds of frogs mm-hmm. bashing on concrete and car, you know, doors and windows is like genuinely horrific. And the first frog that smashes on John C. Riley's windshield is like an amazing jump scare because even you're certainly not seeing expecting it the first time. But even knowing that that scene is coming when that first frog hits, it's so much louder than everything else. And the scene's been relatively quiet before that, that it really like it hits hard. And just the, the images of like Cause again, like, it's not just, Oh, it's raining frogs. Like you see the impact of like a frog falling, you know, at a mass speed slamming against a window, blood, you know, spurting out of it. And it's like, this is truly nightmarish. And I, I on some level, I just love it for the way that it like surprised me as a teenager who thought I knew what I was getting into and being like, Oh, this is like apocalyptic. That's different. Um, but also just uh, as like an idea I just find that such a fascinating, like to have the idea of like, what if it rained frogs and then being like, okay, let's make that the most nightmarish and horrific scenario possible. And sure enough, the scene that unfolds is like apocalyptic for most of the characters. It ends up smashing William H. Macy in the face who then breaks his teeth, which is of course ironic (laughs) because he needs braces. Uh, And then it ends up being a moment of, of uh, coming together for the, um, uh, um, the daughter and her mother who have been separated because of the actions of the father. They reunite during the scene. Uh, And then it also is like this clearly serene moment for Stanley, who has gone through the ringer in terms of like being as part of this game show and then peeing his pants on live TV and like clearly has been through like an emotional trauma. So he does get like, at least a catharsis from that. So there is like, there's beauty in it too, which also feels very like poetic of finding the beauty in, in horrific things, but just the, the sheer shock and terror of that first frog slamming against the window. And the fact that I've seen the film many times now, and I know, I think I know every piece of it inside and out. And yet the first frog that hits always gets me. Um, I love it. So that's, that's my moment frogs on windows.
0: Nice. There's a couple moments. I rewatched the scene. Um, to prepare for this show. And there's a couple moments. I noticed when you talk about the terror, there's that, scene where the car just crashes into the other cars right because it's but then the really cool part is that you see through the windshield and this woman is just absolutely screaming her head (laughs) off (laughs) because you can't she can't believe what's happening and then there's another part that i noticed where uh it's you just kind of see them raining on the street and then you see one one uh frog just gets up and walks off it's like the one frog survived it (laughs) like oh
1: cool (laughs) yeah Yeah. And it's fun too, like in a weird way, this is going to sound like uh, the weirdest sentence, but like to watch the frog's facial expressions. Cause it's like, what are they thinking in this moment? Um, The best example of that is probably the one shot where it shows like from the frog, not literally from the frog's perspective, but you're following the frog falling down through the skylight in Philip Baker Hall's home, which stops him from shooting himself. But there's just this, you know, shot of just the frog falling and just looks kind of like at peace floating around in the sky it's like a Michael Bay shot almost of like a bomb going down except it's a frog (laughs) you
2: know I hate to say I haven't seen Magnolia but were the how did they do that was were these what did they use real frogs
1: some shots are uh like there's real frogs in the scene like Ian mentioned the one that like uh flops away I think a lot of it is just like rubber uh you know fake frogs that they just sort of pour onto the the set um some of them I think are more detailed because there are certain like there's one close-up I remember where it's like it's on the windshield and it kind of like skirts down and you see kind of the slime, <laughs> which I'm assuming is not a real frog, but like a, a more detailed um fake. So I it, it is very much like just practical effects though, because it is it like just the sounds of it is so like <laughs> squishy. Um, yeah, and sloppy. Yeah. Um and there's... I don't think they would have had the budget to do it digitally. There's so many frogs. There's a lot. <laughs> that's the other thing. Like I imagined it more like, certainly I imagined it more like a slow motion thing. And it's just like a couple just kind of gently falling, but it's like dozens just like, poof, just like falling with such thunderous power. Oh, it's so good. I imagine yeah. it happening in slow motion with
2: opera music playing in the background.
1: Right? That's that's <laughs> kind of how you conceptualize it. as something really pretty. And it kind of is pretty, but like, again, in that way of like, that poetic way of, of beauty coming from, uh, something ugly and awful, um, which is kind of all of Magnolia. Cause it's both like, like such a heavy emotional film in terms of being so just miserable and sad and, and melancholic for large stretches, but it is ultimately, I think a very hopeful film, like without going into too much detail, all of the stories end in a way where like the characters might get better. Like the, the, not everybody certain characters certainly some of the older characters are like their stories are more or less done but the younger characters who've who survived this there is the hope that their lives might turn around and get better some of them seem a little more bleak than others you know brooke was saying brooke's my partner um we rewatched watched this movie recently and there's the amazing scene where stanley who's the boy genius on the game show confronts his dad and it's the last scene he's in he just says dad you need to be nicer to me and his dad's just like go to bed and that's that's all that is said And my partner, Brooks just like, I don't think the dad is going to be nicer to him. I'm like, I like to think that he does though, because it's so sad. (laughs) And that scene is so powerful of just this, like this 10 year old kid, just simply, but firmly stating like, you need to be nicer to me. Mm. So I'm going to put that on my watch list. It's very good. It will take your whole afternoon to watch (laughs) because it's like three hours and 18 minutes, but Yeah, I think it's worth it I mean I there's technically things where you can see like he could have cut but I find that it flows really well I've seen this scene
0: many many times because we we have the scene at DVD board game and this is one (laughs) of the scene clip scenes that they show a lot (laughs) nice so I've seen it a lot and for a while I had no idea what it was from and I'm like what is this scene of frogs (laughs) raining down what is going on
1: Was your response to that intrigue?
0: Well, definitely, yes.
1: So you and my mom are very different people because my mom's response was this is stupid. She was out for Tom Cruise that year though, because she hate Eyes Wide Shut too. She's like, These movies are stupid. I'm like, these are brilliant, mom. I
0: think I already knew that scientifically I knew this was a phenomenon that has happened because I think it happened in X-Files once. So so I went through that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's in the Bible. And I there's actually in the the um in the game show, initially, you can see somebody in the crowd is holding a sign that's Exodus whatever the the number oh, really? is, and uh, and then some some one of the stagehands comes and takes the sign away from him, as if because the other somebody else in the crowd is a, a sign that's like Go Stanley, and then it's like somebody <laughs> else like Exodus. <laughs> one of those things people like to bring up is like a plot hole. It's like, well, why would he bring that sign other than for the movie? It's like because it is a movie. This wasn't a <laughs> documentary. <laughs> yeah. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good pick. I like it. Love the frogs. All right. Well, I'm going to go to my second pick and anybody out there who knows me, you know that I'm going to pick Steven Spielberg as my, as my best director, not necessarily an inspired choice maybe, but.
1: The honest one.
0: He's Spielberg. Exactly. And so when I was thinking about what movie I'm going to pick, I decided to settle on Schindler's list. And the reason is because the moment that I'm going to talk about, I think speaks a lot to, to Spielberg himself. So uh, the scene is pretty early on in the movie where Schindler is setting up his uh, factory and he's hiring people and everything like that. And it's the audition for the secretary that he's going to hire. And so in the scene, he's, he's basically doing an audition through um, through a list of women who are applying for this job and you see them basically typing for him, right? So they're, they're um, they're typing on a typewriter and he's kind of watching them. But of course, most of these women are very young and very attractive. And as you go from women to women, you see it's cuts to Schindler getting kind of fascinated with them and getting closer and closer and closer and closer to them. And then it punctuates that where, and of course, many of these, many of the women are not great typers either. They're just kind of, you know, going at their own pace. And then you get to a scene of an older woman, less attractive, who's clearly the best typer there, is just going like crazy. And suddenly there's a cut to him just being completely disinterested in what she's doing. And so there's a few reasons I wanted to bring up this scene. First, I think it's a great example of comedy through editing, I mean, I know that the Oscars have taught us this year that editing is not important at all, but <laughs> I, I do think that there's some uh, value to it, and it's a great example of how editing can be used for, you know, for comedic purposes. Um, I also think that it in, informs Schindler's character quite a bit as the womanizer that he is, which comes up quite a bit in the in the movie as well. And this really gets we really get that sense here of. Kind of the person that he is. He's not, he's not a saint, right? And he does objectify, and we see that here as well. But the the real reason I wanted to bring up the scenes is because I think it's indicative of why Schindler's list, one of the reasons of why Schindler's List is as masterful as it is, and kind of Spielberg's philosophy behind making it. Because when you, you talk to people normally about Schindler's list you'll hear a lot of comments like how hard it is to watch and um how it's one of those movies you only ever want to watch once and never again. And I really disagree with that that sentiment. I would argue that the fact that it is actually a very watchable movie and that's why it endures like it has. And I think that Spielberg, I mean, he's one of the most entertaining directors ever, right? Like he, he spent the latter part of the seventies and specifically the eighties making very entertaining movies. And so he knows how to, he knows how to get the audience's attention. It's just that here he does it in a way that's a little sneakier and people don't really realize how watchable the movie is and that he's pulling them through um, by making it accessible. And he's got a number of tools to do that. But one of the, one of the ways is through scenes like this early on in the movie. Because the first act has a actually has quite a bit of humor in it, right? And a lot of scenes of that are a little bit more lighthearted, like this one. And there's there's other scenes where you know you're seeing like the Jewish black market, and there's some funny characters there. Um, but what you re- realize that he's doing is that he's helping you to connect to the characters in the movie and to just this Jewish community in general, um, so that you're really and easing you into it, right? Because there's going to be some really hard moments later on in the movie, but he's priming you for that by getting you interested. And he does that through through scenes like this. I mean, there's lots of other ways he does it as well, but I think that this is a real good example of how Schindler's List is actually a very watchable movie despite what the general consensus is. Because I don't think people really think like, I I think that they it's more watchable than they give it give it credit for even to themselves. So, yeah,
1: yeah I agree with that. Um, that overall assessment of the film. I mean, you know, Trevor Noah recently did that routine on the Daily Show of talking about how like the Oscar movies are like the vegetables of movies because they're like work and they're not fun, which is. Uh, I hate that attitude in general, but I find this is a film that often gets that kind of attitude attributed to it, where it's like, oh, it's a very, it's an important movie, but it's not one that, you know, one enjoys watching. And to be clear, I can totally understand why this is not something that one might rewatch all the time. And I also understand why for some people, it's just like a non-starter. Like I mentioned my mom earlier, kind of jokingly about, you know, Magnolia, but like, she's never seen this film and she straight up like, yeah, I don't think I can. I mean, like even Titanic, she had trouble with, And that's like a much more, you know, comfort food, Hollywood movie, despite the tragedy in it, this, I don't think she could do. Um, But I agree with you that fundamentally it's not, it's, it's a very watchable film right down to the philosophy of the movie. And that fundamentally it's a very hopeful story. You know, it's about someone doing the right thing at the worst time and saving lives. Um, There's a quote that often gets attributed to Stanley Kubrick um, after his own Uh, holocaust film had uh, failed to materialize where he basically said like I don't think you can make a true movie about the holocaust and people would say to him "Well, what about Schindler's List and he responded that's not a movie about the holocaust the holocaust is about six million people that died Um, Schindler's List is about a a few hundred or a few thousand who didn't and that quote is sometimes taken as like a critique or criticism of Schindler's List but I don't think it is I think it's reflective of you know a different approach to the to the event and to certainly speaks to Spielberg's sensibilities and looking for, for hope and uh, um, you know, humanity's capacity to do good and not evil. But um, I I think it's, it's reflected in a lot of the film, which is about those, even like there's the famous scene in the, in the camps where, you know, the Nazis are interrogating about someone doing something and they shoot a man. And then after that man is shot, a kid raises up his hand, arm and is like, he did it. The one who was just killed. Cause it's like, okay, that person is now dead. If we attribute it to him, we can maybe save a life where it's like, it's not really a victory per se, but it's like a way to endure. And that yeah. I think is fundamentally what Schindler's List is about. Um, so
2: yeah and as you mentioned earlier in the 70s and 80s steven spielberg perfected the art of the popcorn film and that's what he was known for and in the 80s lots of directors came and emulated that style and there was all kinds of um, you know spielbergian type copycats you know like flight of the navigator scenes where people are looking up at the spielberg lights and and um you know that was that was the thing in the 80s and then I think his first serious film he did, and I could be wrong, but I think was the color purple. And then people were kind of like, oh, look, he can do serious films as well, too. And you know, he started coming out with more serious films. And the one thing he's always managed to do is what you mentioned earlier, is he could take something with with heavy content and inject moments of lightheartedness to it. Um, you know, something that he's perfected and something that the audience can relate to and, and keep them engaged. And, you know, like in saving private Ryan. And that's a heavy movie too but you have the scene where they find the wrong private ryan and the, the guy starts crying because he thinks his little brother you know, was killed and you know, he has those moments and that's what makes his movies i'm not going to say fun for for movies like um uh, schindler's list or saving private ryan but it, it keeps the audience engaged and it kind of breaks away from the serious content for a bit and he he knows how to craft scenes and them together very well and find those little moments in them
1: well and this scene is a good example of that too because it is like a small like it's there's a fun quality to it, but it's, it's very understated. You know, it's not reflected in the dialogue. It's just in the, in the cutting um, and the shot compositions. And even then in like a way that's like, it's not like a gag really. It's just kind of like a moment um, which is, makes it ideal for the show, but also um, you know, you talked about Ron, about like how starting with color purple you have Spielberg trying to transition into like more adult movies, quote unquote adult. And I think he struggled with it for a long time. I know Color Purple was like nominated for a bunch of Oscars and stuff. Don't think it won anything though. Uh, Rather famously, I think it was like shut out of everything, despite being nominated in like 10 categories. And then I remember actually really liking Empire of the Sun, but I don't think I could tell you a thing about anything that happens in it. Uh, Always is just the most mediocre thing he's made. It's not the worst, but it's just like nothing. Um, I think he struggled for a long time to merge his... um, his detailed filmmaking and his level of like uh, observations into human behavior and ways of of reflecting that cinematically. I think he actually really struggled to bring that to the screen in, in uh, more serious dramas. And Schindler's List was the breakthrough. Certainly it's the film that finally got him his uh, Oscar, his first Oscar. He ended yeah. up winning again. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do think it, it cracked the code for him.
0: Well, it was him realizing that he can take a serious story like that and still put his stamp on it, right? Whereas mm-hmm. something like Color Purple, which I don't particularly like, I don't think does. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem like Spielberg, but this... Well, and he's like also,
1: Spielberg. like, I think he would probably... He said that he wasn't ready to make the Color Purple. And I also think on some level, he's, like, not the right filmmaker for it because, mm-hmm. you know, to, like, I, I just feel like his own insights into, you know uh racism and the history of uh uh, anti-black racism and slavery are just like i'm not saying he can't have a perspective on it but it's not something that's going to that speaks to his own experiences in the same way that schindler's list growing up you know a jewish man in a generation not far removed from what happened is much closer to um his experiences and you could make an argument a similar argument of like west side story like well how is he fit to tell a story of Puerto Rican Americans? And it's like, well, fair enough, but also a lot of that film is rooted in not just the Puerto Rican experience, but also the um, the lower class white experience and those characters who feel resentful for their place in the the social hierarchy. So even though this one group he maybe can't instinctively relate to, there's another one that I think he can, um, which gives him more of an in in the way that like it which to tie it back to that point of like putting in his Spielbergian touches I almost wonder if there was like a trepidation on his part to do so on the color purple not just because it's like a big important adult movie but it's about race and it's something that like you know you don't for good reason you don't want to screw up and you don't want to make a mockery of and if it kind of pigeon held him because it was the wrong material for him to bring to the screen yeah. uh, this is going off memory though I haven't seen color purple since high school so <laughs> For the reasons Ian stated, where it's like, it's not that good. <laughs> it's not, no. <laughs> Really good performance from uh, Whoopi Goldberg. She's fantastic in it. And so is Danny Glover, actually. He's was really she nominated for that? I forget. She I was, and so. she lost to uh, Geraldine Page, who was it was like, you know, Paul Newman had been nominated like a zillion times. And it's like, we need to finally give this to her. Um, actually, when F. Marie Abraham, because he was the one presenting, because he'd won the year prior um, for Amadeus, when he... Read her name before he even said it. He just looked up and was like, "I believe this woman is the greatest actor in the English language, Geraldine Page." So it was like it was. Now I don't think she's super well remembered uh, with like mainstream audiences, but at the time it would have been like, you know, she's earned it. She's overdue. Hmm. I haven't seen a trip to Bountiful though, so I have no idea how deserving that <laughs> was. She's probably good in that.
0: All right. Well, shall we move to a uh, a very different movie? <laughs> yeah ron why
2: don't you go with your second pick here okay so uh the director i chose for my second pick and as i mentioned at the beginning of the show he's not one of my current favorite directors Uh, in fact this director only really directed eight movies but but wrote scores of other films Um, but at one point in my life he was my favorite director and i would look forward every year to whatever he was releasing And that director is John Hughes. And uh, he's my favorite because in the 80s, I was just a young lad, but he made films like Breakfast Club, Weird Science, um, 16 Candles with with characters that I I wouldn't say I could relate to at the time, but his films would prep me to things I was expecting and and things that I somewhat would be going through at that age. but I would look at the more as prep courses for high school. And then I got to high school and realized it was nothing like his movies. <laughs> not everyone's super rich and not everyone's super nerdy. And, you know, we all kind of fall in between. But he made some very interesting stereotypes in these films that, you know, you could find something relatable to. And the, the film I chose was Ferris Bueller's Day Off and which is about uh, Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller and he's playing hooky for that day and he recruits his, his best friend and his girlfriend to join him and throughout the day they're going through all kinds of uh, misadventures and hijinks while he has a sister and the, and the dean of a school hot on his trail trying to catch him and um, in uh, uh, about halfway through the film there's a little break of all the hijinks and they're at the uh, Chicago um, uh, I forget the name of the, I think it's just the Chicago Institute of Art, uh, um, the Art Institute of Chicago. They're in the museum there and there's a little montage of them um, frolicking in the museum, enjoying works of art. Um, you know, the scene changes and you see the works of art on their own and you see them intertwined with the scenes of Ferris and, and Sloan and Cameron, his, his girlfriend and his friend, um, posing in front of the art, holding hands with the children. Um, you know, studying works of art and appreciating the art. And then the scene ends with a scene of, of Cameron staring at a, a painting, and I looked at the painting. It's Sunday afternoon, in the I- island of La Grand by George Soire. Um, And the scene just ends with Cameron staring at the painting, and it goes back and forth between the painting and Cameron, while it also cuts to Ferris sharing a kiss with his girlfriend. But it goes back to Cameron, and then the imagery is is of the the painting just getting closer. And closer to where you're seeing more of the ca- the canvas, but you're also getting close-ups to Cameron's eyes. To the, to the scene ends where it's right in his eye, and and that's being um, serenaded by uh, um, a cover of Smith's "Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want" in the background, which is the perfect song for Cameron because it's all about someone living a life of regret and nothing ever going good for them. And and up until that moment, uh, you the scenes with cameron show that he's someone that has uh, some sort of self-loathing and you know comes from a, a, a home where he's he's not really noticed or he comes second fiddle to his his dad's fancy toys he's, his parents are very well off they're in a hateful marriage uh, cameron hates who he is because of the way his his uh, parents treat him he uh, he may makes himself feel sick but up until this point it's all played for comedic effect or lighthearted humor where cameron wakes up in the bed and you know, he's, he's super sick that day, but, but Ferris just kind of plays off him and comes up with the little lines, you know, describing Cameron's background, like uh, Cameron is so tight, he stuck a lump of coal his ass, in two weeks you'd have a diamond. But you never really see how bad Cameron has up until this moment, and, and when you hear that music playing in the museum and in that montage, when he's with, with Ferris and Sloane, they're all together. And that, who Cameron surrounds himself with, the people he surrounds himself with. But at the end of that scene, he's by himself and you see Sloan and Ferris together and he's staring at this painting and you get the impact by the expression of the look on Cameron's face and how he's looking at this little girl in the park. And you see all these people in the park in the painting except he's focused on the one person that's staring back at him from the painting. And you see the anguish in his eyes and you see nothing in her face and I think that's what he's seeing in himself. And also, I think at that point, that's where the audience truly connects with him. And that's us staring at the, 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 the film and staring at Cameron. And we're kind of joining him in that scene. And it's just kind of a three-way stare. And, um, and then also, the second reason I like that scene is it contrasts Ferris Bueller. And it goes back to, to my point about the bride and Bud and how they contrast each other. Ferris Bueller is a horrible person when you look at the movie <laughs> as a whole. He's so loved. And that's, that's something that Cameron doesn't get, but he's such a bad person. He, he, he takes advantage of Cameron. There's a point where he assaults him at the beginning of the film, where he knocks the phone out of his hand and slaps him on the face for saying the wrong things to, to Mr. Rooney. And when he's uh, doing Cameron a favor by doing a, a, a calling Mr. Rooney, disguising himself as, as Sloane's dad and, and he takes advantage of him. He takes his car, he uses him for the car just all kinds of bad things Cameron does. And I think that's why Cameron surrounds himself because he's doing all the things that he can't do. And I think that's why we root for Ferris also as an audience because he's doing all the things that that we wish we could do to our bosses, to our teachers and get away with. Ferris gets away with these things. And uh, even at the same time though, he's a bad person that's the same reason Cameron surrounds himself with him. Um, just because he's the contrast, he's the yin to his yang, and he pulls out that part of, of Cameron. I think that's all you know. That's pretty much what the movie is about, and it sums up. But at that point, I think is where we really identify with Cameron because we see how anguish he is, and maybe that's when we start to realize this is also why we're rooting for Ferris as well, too. But we identify more with Cameron, and that's my moment. Tried to explain it the best I could. Yeah, nice. That's a great moment. It really mm-hmm. is.
0: Yeah, I like, and I like when there's when he's staring at the painting and it's just cutting between them but it's zooming in each time and it's interesting because it's zooming in on a painting face which is really just turns into a bunch of like pixelated dots at one point (laughs) and uh and yeah I think there's a lot to be read in that just the idea of what is Cameron seeing in this in this little boy or little girl or whatever it is that that he's staring at like what is he And you're thinking that as you're watching him, like, what is he, what's going through his head right now? It's pretty intriguing.
1: Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of backpedal to something uh, you said earlier, Ron, where you mentioned how, like, when you saw these films, you were actually a little bit younger, like you weren't high school age yet. And I was just wondering if it was similar to um, when Philip J. Fry refers to his breakfast club soundtrack as, you know, saying, I can't wait till I'm old enough to feel stuff. Would that be an accurate you <laughs> <like, laughs> related to these films at a young age? Yeah, it would be accurate. Uh, I'd say <laughs> that's it's it's
2: funny when you mention that because not only were John Hughes films so eventful, but the soundtracks were so amazing back then and, and they helped shape who I am today, you know, and, and my interest musically um you know there's uh, i think the first album i really loved was the pity pretty, pretty in pink soundtrack and he didn't direct that film but he wrote that film pretty in pink and back then as i mentioned earlier we didn't have internet so when a movie came out it's a john hughes film and stuff and you just assumed he was directing everything before i, I learned how to appreciate directors but i just knew that that he wrote this and he was attached to it and that i'd have that soundtrack and and that's why I also love that scene in Paris Bueller's Day Off because of the song, Please, Please, Please mm-hmm. Let Me Get What I Want. And it's it's not performed by the Smith. In fact, it's performed by um, uh, uh, the Dream Academy. It's it's a beautiful cover of the Smith's Please, Please, Please by the Dream Academy. But that was on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack is performed by the Smiths. And that was when I was first mm-hmm. introduced to the Smiths. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I I grew to appreciate that music, but that was my introduction of appreciating the appreciating that music and and for me personally coming of age and that's why I chose John Hughes because his films and the soundtracks to his film helped me come of age and I grew into those films and and grew into those soundtracks and uh, yeah to answer your question yeah I
1: mean it's it's funny too because it was um I was thinking because you mentioned like you know you were younger when you saw these films and they were important to you and then you still have fondness for them but you also kind of in a way grew out of Hughes. Um, I was talking about this with a friend kind of having this discussion of asking, you know, with the breakfast club specifically, but I think it applies to Ferris Bueller as well of like, is this movie dated? Because on the one hand, you know, clearly, yes, it is like, it's very eighties, very of its time. And the, the soundtrack, the styles, the, the, this, the cliched stereotypes it draws of like jocks and nerds and the popular girl and the, the weirdo goth you know like these sort of fine lines of people don't really exist and certainly aren't that accurate to like the makeup of modern high schools but on the other hand you know these movies and and Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club in particular still get rediscovered by younger generations who do connect with them despite the fact that ostensibly they should feel you know like these relics from like a, a distant time but they don't they still resonate with a young audience so there's I think something to be said there for there something that Hughes and his writing and uh, in his filmmaking captures about maybe not like an, an, authentic portrayal of like what high school is like, but of a certain teenage feeling um, that still rings true. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And um, I, I watched it again recently um, in, to prep for this and, when I watched it, I was thinking, hmm, is this gonna be as dated as I remember? And it actually still holds up today. Um, you see the stereotypes in there, but in a better way than when you see movies trying to replicate the 80s and they just crank up the stereotypes and focus on all the trends of one year. And they try to throw every trend of the 80s into a, into a blender and go, all right, this is what we think the 80s was like. But then when you see a film like that, that was genuinely made smack middle of the 80s, you know, it's a little bit more subtle. Uh, the period. And it, it holds up. It's not, um, it's, it's not as dated as you think it would be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's elements of it that are the goth and, and things that you mentioned, but the humor still holds up really well. Uh, the jokes. And I, I think if it was re-released in theaters um, and introduced to a newer audience, I think uh, there's a lot to look at. There's a lot to like about it. And uh, I think there's a lot to discover and find about it. still.
1: So. Nice.
0: I think it's interesting that you said that the this the music actually comes from like a smith song from like a pop song i would not have expected that i thought it was just like a instrumental piece
2: yeah i know it's it's i love that i love that piece and uh it's, it's a cover of it and it just it fits so well with the scene and uh, yeah yeah it's, it's a great <laughs> actually, song
0: <laughs> here in canada we have these uh this telus phone company that has all these commercials with like animals in it and i remember there they did one with lizards where they had the music and they, they recreated the museum scene, but with lizards and the, the characters <laughs> and they're like staring at the art. And yeah, you know, I always thought that was a funny. I
2: it think was... fa- family guy did it too with, uh, with Peter in the museum and they, they, they played the same music, but you know, they changed the, the keys and, and everything uh, of the music. So it's not a, mm. uh, it's not doing anything with copyrights, but. Uh,
1: They've yeah, lifted like... a lot from this, like the it was kind of released as a movie like the stewie griffin the untold story it was a collection of episodes string together like the climax of that episode is literally the climax of ferris bueller but it's stewie running through the backyards and not Ferris. <laughs> but it's like the exact same scene But the point that i'm like this isn't even a joke you just did the same scene <laughs> <laughs> so yeah good pick though yeah really good, good, pick. Uh, good uh good uh connection to it um right. i'll uh I suppose I'll close out with something that is much more not something I grew up with at all. I would have, I've only seen the film once in theaters and that is from it's the film. If Beale street could talk directed by Barry Jenkins. And I'm, I'm assuming Ian, this is the pick surprised you when you saw it. Yeah. Um, You know, Jenkins, like, is he one of my favorite directors and like the grand pantheon of all directors probably not No, but in terms of young directors making movies right now, I think he's, emerged as along with Robert Eggers like the best filmmakers of their generation um I haven't seen his first film but Moonlight I think is just exceptional and I liked If Beale Street Could Talk even more and more than any almost more than any other filmmaker except maybe Eggers he's someone who I'm just so excited to see what he, what movies he makes next um the moment I've chose from If Beale Street Could Talk is comes from a, a, a scene where the main character Tish is working at a a department store and specifically like in the perfume section where she you know is a saleswoman and she also samples the perfumes on her wrist and lets customers come and, and smell them for you know considering if they're going to buy them or not and throughout the scene she, her voiceover is narrating how you know the store thought it would be such a you know progressive move to hire a colored woman for this job and uh you know she a lot of her monologue internal monologue is, is distinguishing how she's treated by different customers and specifically there's this section where she talks about how when a black man comes into the store, he will, you know, lift up his hand for you to spray it and then he will lift his own hand to his nose and smell and say thank you and move on. And when you know there are white men who come in, who will grab her hand, wait for her to spray it, and then lift her hand to their nose and take a long sniff and as she's describing it you're seeing it. And the way that Jenkins, I mean, the film in general, like it looks beautiful. It's amazingly shot, but there's such a difference and it's a subtle difference because it's not like super obvious in the visuals, but the way in which the, you know, more gentle, more kind scene with this, you know, unnamed black man coming in and uh, leaving his hand out to be sprayed, the way his close up is shot and the way he is framed and performed in that scene that feels without dialogue, just really like. Um, respectful and reassuring versus the way that this older white man who shot, who's like being much more aggressive and, and um, domineering of her space and her body. Um, You can feel such a palpable difference in the tone of those moments with minimal changes in terms of, uh, again, there's very little dialogue from the men and also, you know, the actual, the, the lighting in the scene, the compositions, they're not like dramatically different that you could immediately highlighted but just in the subtle changes you really feel this this difference in presence so I love the scene on its own merits I think it's beautifully shot I think the the narration is I'm assuming anyway straight from James Baldwin's novel and it's so poetically written and so not just um, precise in cutting to the core of um, the ways in which she's treated and on the basis of being black and being a woman but not just precise in, in observing that but like detailed and exquisitely well written where you just hang off every word. So in isolation, just as a scene, I think it's an amazing scene. But the real reason I wanted to highlight it here is because I think it's a great example of part of what makes If Beale Street Could Talk special, which is its refusal to adhere to the um, the typical structure of a Hollywood film where, you know, clearly Baldwin's novel is, is, you know, it's written for uh, for a novelistic medium. And in translating or in adapting it, instead of trying to take that skeleton and fit it into a three-act Hollywood screenplay formula, they let the novel be what it is. So you'll have scenes that, you know, with characters who kind of fade away after their initial scene, they don't come back in the same way that you'd expect them to be, you know, in that earlier scene set up to be paid off later. You know, you have these moments, these sort of digressions within the story that don't really connect that much to the main plot but are important thematically or to the characters or to the emotions of the story um and you have an ending that in context when you first watch it does kind of feel abrupt but then when you reflect on it realize like this is where it was going and this is the perfect you know if heartbreaking way for this story to end but this scene in particular to me is the perfect example because it's like you could technically cut this and it wouldn't affect the plot at all it wouldn't really even affect the character at all um but it provides such a uh nuanced and and insightful window into her life and her experience and it's so just perfect in the way it's constructed that I think you would lose a lot to have the scene cut and I think it speaks to to um Jenkins's confidence and strengths as a filmmaker that he recognized like we're not losing this even though it's not important to the plot and we're not going to restructure it to make it somehow more significant to the main story involving her incarcerated boyfriend and the you know the the legal efforts to to free him um we're going to let this be somewhat disconnected because while it doesn't connect to the main story on the sort of immediate level it is important in talking about her life and the way she's treated and and is another factor in something she has to deal with while she struggles with this personal crisis, Um, and I think that's just beautiful. So.
0: It's interesting that you were talking about like just the way it's shot and the aesthetics of the scene, because as you're talking, I'm, I'm realizing like when people mention this movie, when they say if Beale street could talk, the initial image that comes into my head is her, at the perfume counter. Like really that that's the first thing I think of when I think of this movie so I guess you're right like it, it's <laughs> it's it's creeped in yeah like it's a it's a very visual image absolutely mm-hmm. yeah um, this,
2: oh go ahead. go ahead Ron no no you go ahead <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I also haven't seen this film but I do appreciate how how you look for those details and and, and the structure of how scenes are shot and um the way you describe it yeah it's it's uh looking forward to watching it uh, i wish i had more to say on it um but yeah i love i love your perspective on it
1: it's an excellent film it got kind of it was kind of underappreciated when it came out i felt like like it got it won best supporting actress which is great and very well deserved um but it didn't get nominated for too much else. I think it maybe also got in for score, um, didn't get in for picture or director, which I found baffling because it was just a couple years after Moonlight was universally recognized as one of the best movies of the year and one best picture. And it was just like, why is this not here for a field Street Could Talk? I don't know if it's because on some level the Academy felt like, well, we've honored him already and his type of film. We don't have to do it again. I don't know if it's because the what I've praised about it, the fact that it does stick so closely to the novel structure and doesn't bend its way out of shape to be more, you know, filmic in its, in its, uh, storytelling just left people cold, but for whatever reason, it didn't generate the excitement, um, that I think it deserved to, I mean, there are definitely people who championed it, like Michael, friend of the show, I uh, was, you know, a huge proponent of, of the film, um, so it, it does have like a fan base, certainly, but uh, kind of flew under the radar. But I hope that as time goes on, people latch onto it and embrace it because it's a beautifully made and uh, observant film. And also, like, I think something else that I like about the scene, too, is that it it's one of the certainly a heavy scene in the film. Nothing like overtly dark happens, but there's a lingering layer of like racism to the way that she's treated and an undercurrent of violence. Again, nothing. Overtly violent happens, but the way that we see this guy, you know, grab her hand and hold it and look at her, like you can feel the violence from it, even if it doesn't manifest itself. But then that is counterbalanced by there's a lot of scenes of, you know, beauty and 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 joy and happiness and humor. I mean, to to make to make the comparison back, Ian, to your pick on Schindler's list, I think in general, people have when films are about um not just black characters, but like racism in particular. And the film is about, you know, the uh, racist uh, criminal justice system. In part, there's a tendency to um, see the movie as work. Be like, I don't know if I want to watch that. And there's some heavy stuff in this film. And the scene I chose is an example of that, but it's also like beautiful and romantic and like really sweet, even if it's also not sugar-coated. There's still a natural sweetness to it.
0: Yeah. And I, I like that you mentioned that the movie would lose quite a bit if the scene was cut. And you're right, like it, it has a lot to say with, with the differences in the way that she's treated. And I think that it makes us as the viewers kind of realize how important just the small ways that we act, just the small things that we do are really important in the way that they're perceived too. So you're mm-hmm. right, I think it would lose a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And again, that's one of the details that I think distinguishes it from um, even from that year. Like you had, I mean, the, the nadir of films dealing with race was of course the best picture winning green book, which was just clunky. And like, the best you could say about it is was well-intended, but not particularly sophisticated. And, but it like, it's very much just like the most basic and blunt and obvious examples of um, of racism and racism. That's only, you know, individuals and individuals who are like overtly bigoted. And there's like, there's like lip service in that film to more, more nuanced, um, more systemic problems, but it mostly evaporates by the end. And this film is more observant to a structural injustices, but also b just like those subtle things that like one might not even be aware of that they're doing, but that are, you know, read a different way for someone on the receiving end of them.
0: Yeah, it brings to mind like Ebert's famous quote that we brought up before about movies being machines that create empathy. I think this scene is one that does that very, very well. It mm-hmm. really puts you in her perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And and Baldwin's writing does it beautifully too. Like there's a line where she talks about, I sit behind the counter all day and I smile until my teeth hurt or some some like I'm yeah. I'm not getting the full poetry of it. I'm no James Baldwin, but it's uh, you know, like that line alone, like you feel like. You, you get it so clearly. Um, and the performance is brilliant in bringing that to life too, both in the way that she reads the, the voiceover, but also just the way that you, it's that customer service smile that, you know, we all recognize, especially those of us who have worked customer service, um, amplified tenfold because of the racial dynamics at play. Yeah, I love this film. Um, uh, Criterion, please put out a nice Blu-ray.
2: Yeah. I
1: want it. I, I know we're not doing our Blu-ray fantasy episode anymore but (laughs) we live it every day so (laughs) awesome yeah cool okay
0: well there we go we've got six directors in six great picks i think um yeah do you guys have any final words or any directors you were thinking of going with
1: i wanted to ask you guys actually with regard to Um, well Ian you know you had Spielberg and we've talked about a couple Spielberg films that you're not so crazy about both in this episode and in others and you know Ron you talked about how uh, John Hughes was like was your favorite director at one point and while you still like him now he's not the favorite anymore and I'm just wondering to what extent you guys feel like like that Quentin Tarantino theory that like the bad movies really hurt your legacy to what extent you guys feel that's actually true like does Spielberg making the BFG or uh, Ready Player One, which I'll defend to an extent. Or, I'll uh, defend Ready know. Player One, too. Yeah. Making films that aren't on the level of a Schindler's List or a Jaws, like does that damage his, his work to you? Or not his work, maybe. I'm sure the individual films uh, are still stellar. But as a body of work, is it lesser to you because of those misfires? I, I don't
2: think so. I think the good definitely outweighs the bad. You know, with John Hughes, he's he's not one of my favorites now. Number one, he he passed away, um, you know, some time ago. But number two, he only directed eight movies, but he's w- written so many more films, you know, and I think you mentioned Home Alone. I think you guys covered Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in one of your episodes, which is a great film. But he's done some stinkers too. He wrote Home Alone 1 and 2, but he also wrote Home Alone 3. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I don't remember him for Home Alone 3, even though I'm well aware he wrote it. I focus on on the good and um you know know, tarantino has some um i wouldn't say bad films in fact probably his 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 worst film is one that he didn't direct but one that he wrote which was natural born killers but Mm -hmm. i blame that more on oliver stone
1: that's the only one i haven't seen yeah that that he's
2: associated with yeah um but um you know i I, said to answer your question the good outweighs the bad for me and i i don't you know it's like yeah. ah they, so they had a misfire but let's see what they do next
0: yeah I agree when I think of directors I think of what are my what are the favorite movies that I have from that director I don't think of what are the what are the misfires that they had necessarily
1: mm. yeah I, I mean I I actually I agree pretty much completely I mean Tarantino's quote is, uses Billy Wilder as an example of like you know his later run post you know 1960s and saying like if it was him and his movies, like he doesn't want someone going to the video store and picking up, you know, fedora or buddy, buddy. And I get the logic kind of, but it also kind of ignores that we live in like an information age where you can very quickly ascertain which are the major texts of a filmmaker. Um, So, and, and sort of prioritize those ones. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's different when like a filmmaker gets into a rut and it just, they keep making stuff and it becomes kind of sad to see, but like, I do I do tend to think that just the, the legacy is just the great works. Yep. Um, although I guess to maybe give an interesting pushback to it, I do think there was something uh, amongst a certain online um, teenage movie nerd um, in the 2010s when uh, Spike Lee directed the Old Boy remake. And it was, I haven't seen it, but it was pretty uniformly panned and Old Boy is one of those like really beloved films by like a hardcore cinephile audience and I do think there was like a group a certain generation of young male moviegoers who thought Spike Lee was bad because the only movie they knew of him was Old Boy and uh you know use that to assume oh he's a terrible director which is like laughable um and I do ultimately think the onus of responsibility is on like the audiences there that's like maybe do like slightly more work before dismissing one of the greatest (laughs) filmmakers of the last you know couple decades uh and one of the most vital but uh i I mean i do think one could see there was like a consequence to that film in a sense in the way that he was uh his films were valued or not valued by a certain audience so good point great point
0: yeah awesome well i think we'll uh we'll wrap it up there so let us know what uh your favorite directors are and what are some really great moments from them so tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds um ron thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me guys i had a lot of
2: fun Uh, i was really excited to be here
0: do you have anything to plug or anything you want to mention or
2: i don't have anything uh To plug personally for me, but um, there is a site if if, uh, anyone out there listening wants to go and talk about movies and things related to film. uh, There's a site I frequent called coming soon boards dot net and be nice to have some uh, people pop in and and talk about film.
1: We're putting it out there. (laughs) We finally (laughs) mentioned it on Mike.
0: Dan, you got anything coming up?
1: uh the script for the new video the next video is done I'll have that out at some point in April um it'll be about half an hour so it's not it's going to take me some time but I don't know I have a deal signed with the sponsor so I'll get it out at some point in April <laughs> 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 so look forward to that it's on film bros excellent
0: and no uh, April Fool's video from you
1: no just rewatch my learning to love Batman v Superman that that tells you everything
0: I was debating that maybe we should do like an episode where we talk about like Batman versus Superman, the Martha moment (laughs) or something (laughs) or the sand line from Attack of the Clones, but no. The
1: problem see. is I've seen those scenes get reclaimed as like actually brilliant. Like the Martha oh scene is like, actually, it's a moment of recognition that Bruce is the monster and he's become the thing he once fought against, destroying the blah, blah, blah. And then like the sand scene is like, Anakin hates sand, of course, because he grew up on a on a planet full of sand and he was a slave. Therefore, he associates sand with slavery. Therefore, it's like... As if we didn't uh, get
0: that the first time. <laughs>
1: it's like, okay,
0: it's, it's still, still just terrible.
1: Like, it's also weird because he says that and then they make out that's what makes it weird like i don't like sand but your skin is smooth and then they kiss and it's like what what (laughs) we're missing like (laughs) four layers to get to this beat yeah like people like we can't satire is dead you can't make these jokes because they're too they will be taken too seriously
0: Mm, man oh well missed opportunities
1: yeah maybe next year
0: yeah All right, well, that's all for this week. So thanks for listening. Uh, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll catch you next time.